Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I am John McWhorter. I teach linguistics at Columbia University, and you can now buy my latest book, Words on the Move, out from Henry Holt. And also, check out my new TED Talk on why we should learn new languages, even if technology is about to render it less necessary than it's ever been. In any case, I am your host for Lexicon Valley, and this week... At this time, I know what I'm supposed to do the show about. I'm supposed to do something about a certain Mr. Trump, and I guess it would be about how he talks. But you know what? I've actually written a fair amount about that here and there. And I thought that since we've all heard him talking quite a bit these days, and especially since whoever you voted for, whatever your political party, it's probably been a tough several days. I thought, let's do something kind of light-fingered. How about a light-fingered journey through how other presidents have talked? All of them have taught little language and linguistics lessons in random aspects of the way they express themselves. And I got to thinking about that when I put together this show. Now, since the subject of President Obama's talking style has been well covered in many venues. There's actually a whole book about that subject, in fact. And even I have touched upon it in a recent episode of the show. I thought we'd start with the president before him. And that brings us to George W. Bush and his speech. And, you know, I'll bet nine out of 10 of the people listening are immediately thinking in particular of nuclear, that word that he pronounced. Many of us hear that as a mispronunciation. I barely think we need reminding because it's not as if we're talking about the speech patterns of James Garfield. But just for the heck of it, let's listen to a clip of the way George W. Bush said, and I presume says, nuclear. To abandon their nuclear ambitions, world and nations, get rid of your nuclear programs. So the question always was back then for we linguistic folk, why does he say it that way? What's up with that? And of course, it isn't only him. I'm sure many of us know people who say nuclear. It's actually quite common. Apparently, Dwight D. Eisenhower said nuclear and must have been okay because for a while he was running Columbia University where I work. And that, of course, (laughs) makes everything okay. But it's quite common. But why do people say nuclear? Many of us hear it as ignorant. It's actually something based on a rather predictable process, which is that words have a way of starting to look like one another. 
And we often hear prefixes and suffixes differently than they emerged in a word. And next thing you know, the language changes. With nuclear, it's hard to tolerate it. Nuclear certainly has a kind of corn pone feel, I think, to any American listener. But this is what's up with it. Think about this. Nuclear. Kind of an odd word. Not as odd as syzygy and some of the others, but nuclear. There aren't that many words that rhyme directly with a word like nuclear. You just learn to say it. But then think about particular circular, spectacular, tubular. When you learn the words of the English language, you internalize the fact that a whole lot of them end in euler. You're saying nuclear, then you say nuclear. There's a reason. There's a molecule, molecular. An oculist is, in their way, ocular. You say words like that all the time. It seems like you add a euler. So, suppose you're using nuclear and you're thinking about the fact that one can nuke something. Now, of course, that feels slangy to us, but nevertheless, that is in any American English speaker's brain. And so you can nuke things. And so somewhere in your basal ganglia or wherever these sorts of things happen, you're going to be thinking, well, isn't it a nuclear matter, just like something is a molecular matter? And your tongue is so used to saying euler because of particular and circular and spectacular. Next thing you know, you're saying nuclear. And evidence that that's exactly what's going on is that a person who says nuclear usually does not talk about a nuclear family. That nuclear is something that we process as having a very different kind of meaning. And people are more given to saying nuclear when the subject actually is nukes. And so you're creating this new word where you think it's nuke and then this suffix euler. Now, I, like everybody else, hear nuclear as somehow not right. Viscerally, I hear it that way. But the truth is that is how so many things that we say have emerged that we have no problem with. And so, for example, burger. If you say fish burger or if you say veggie burger, technically that's wrong. Benjamin Harrison, our 23rd president, would have found that a rather baffling expression to talk about a burger as a patty of meat. It starts with Hamburg, as in the cute German town, city, I think they would call it. And there was a kind of meat preparation. You could have a hamburger steak. That's how it started. So it was something from Hamburg. After a while, you talked about having hamburger sandwiches. There's a revival of the old play, The Front Page, playing right here in New York. And wouldn't you know, one of the characters in you know, the fedora walking around smoking a cigar. Oh, you fellas don't understand. Now, Before I... you go on, wouldn't you, would you mind running down to the corner and get me a hamburger sandwich? That was still a current expression. Now, if somebody says hamburger sandwich, you know that it's going to shorten to hamburger. That's just the way things work. Some of us might remember an earlier Lexicon Valley episode with the backshift, etc. So hamburger sandwich, you know that's going to become hamburger. But then you start thinking hamburger. Okay, well, it's meat. And well, even though you wouldn't really probably like chopped ham in a patty, it's not something that seems utterly ridiculous. And ham is meat. And so you're thinking, well, okay, it's a ham burger. So next thing you know, burger becomes this sequence of sounds that means a patty of meat. And pretty soon you have a cheeseburger and a veggie burger and a fish burger. But that's not how it began. It was hamburg or steak. There was no such thing as a, a burger in that sense. And yet here we are. So nuclear 
is trying to do something similar where it is a misinterpretation of the way the language was at a certain point. But, you know, there are all sorts of things like that in our language right now where we wouldn't have any problem with it. And we would be perplexed that Benjamin Harrison thought we had made a mistake before W was Bill Clinton. Let's listen to one of the most linguistically interesting things that he ever said when he decided with his always philosophical mind that we needed to reconsider what is is. With Ms. Lewinsky, the statement that there is no sex of any kind in any manner, shape or form with President Clinton was an utterly false statement. Is that correct? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. If the if the, if is means is and never has been, that is not a, that's one thing. If it means there is none, that was a completely true statement. Well, what is is, and you know, it's a weirder way of having a language work than we might think in many of the ways that we use is. And so, for example, something like she is my sister. That sounds so natural to us in English. But to tell you the truth, there are as many languages in the world that would never use any bit of material in between the she and my sister in that sentence, as there are ones that would have something like she is my sister. Some languages get into the habit of putting a verb to be in between, say, the she and my sister. And there are other things that can get stuck in there, kind of like food in your teeth, except in this case, the food fossilizes and just stays there. But languages very often will just say she, my sister. And it's one of those things. We think of it as natural, but you don't really need it. If you say she, my sister, it's obvious that you're implying that my sister is what she is. The juxtaposition pretty much takes care of it. It's an extremely basic relation. And so, for example, in Russian, she, my sister. You don't have to say is. Now, every time I write or say that, I hear from Russian speakers saying, but we do have an is verb. And yes, I know you have yes, but you don't use it anywhere near as much as you would in English. It's only used when you're being especially explicit. I'm Indonesian. You don't have to have it. Or say biblical Hebrew, saying she, my sister, is really quite a high business. If you think about something like Yahweh ha Elohim, Yahweh is God. And so Yahweh and then ha Elohim, the whatever you want to call it. There's no to be in there. And that is in the Hebrew Bible. Hebrew has developed something like what we call a copula, actually, among linguists. It does it with pronouns. So now you can say Yahweh is God, but not in the original language. It's not something you need, just like you don't need to distinguish between he and she, as natural as that feels to us in English. There's so many languages that don't. Just like you don't really need to have tense. There are languages that don't have tense. In the same way, you don't really have to say is in a sentence where you're indicating that two things are the same. The fact that we have that in English and that European languages tend to like it so much is really just a frill. And we tend to associate not having that kind of be verb with black English in particular. And so somebody might say she my sister or she a teacher, something like that. But you know what's interesting? Black English is not 
the only English that cannot have be in sentences like that. That's often said. It's often been said by me, but I actually have been tipped off by Sally Taliamonte, the sociolinguist who I had on as a guest back in the summer, that there are vernacular Englishes where you don't have that be. And you have these sentences that you would think, if you saw them on the page, were uttered by somebody black in Detroit or Atlanta. But really, these are people who are decidedly not black. And so, for example, you can hear an Irish person, certain dialects, say, she a teacher. Or, me eldest daughter not married yet. I'm going to spare you my bad Irish accent. This is just how the sentences go without my trying a brogue. Or, I not able to swim at all. These are ordinary sentences said by white people across the pond from where I am recording this. It's an interesting linguistic fact that didn't start getting around until relatively recently. So just sharing that that's something else that is, 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 isn't, and not only in black English, but in other Englishes as well. Now, just to be playful, there was a wonderful anthology album by Quincy Jones way back in, I think it was 1989. And it seems to have fallen out of the general consciousness, but it used to give me such joy. And there was a quick little skitty track about the verb to be. And I think it's time people started paying more attention to back on the block. And so here it is. Please understand that we realize all these hebes, shebes, and weebies can cause the connoisseurs of speech to get the heebie-jeebies. But after all, if you don't be, and they don't be, who do? So allow us to personify and conjugate the verb to be for you. We're the human being band. <laughs> the first George Bush and how he talked. It's interesting. It got around an awful lot that George W. Bush was not exactly a master of words. But the truth is that his father had his verbal tics as well. It didn't become as much of a meme because the media was different then. And I think general opinion about him was different than it ended up being about his son. But he had his ways of saying certain things. And one that I remember finding funny because it did get around as a meme is how he pronounced Saddam Hussein's first name. He always had it as Saddam. We're going to get you Saddam. And so here is a recording. Some of us might now mainly remember it from Dana Carvey imitating him saying it. But George Bush, the first, really did say it that way. Here it is. And he came back from Baghdad with no progress at all in getting Saddam Hussein to withdraw from Kuwait. Now, the 28 countries with forces in the Gulf area have exhausted all reasonable efforts to reach a peaceful resolution, have no choice but to drive Saddam from Kuwait by force. So, Saddam. But really, that's not how it was pronounced. For example, here is one native speaker of Arabic saying it. Saddam Hussein. And I think closer to that, for those of us who don't speak Arabic, would be Saddam. And that's what we're more used to, not Saddam. So why was Bush saying it like that? And again, some of it had to do with what we're more used to in our language. So Saddam, we can say it, but there aren't many words that sound like that. Whereas we're used to Adam and Madam and talking about how somebody had him. That's ordinary. And so, for example, if you're reading it, if you're used to seeing this on the page, and let's face it, George Bush 
probably didn't have many conversations in Arabic with Saddam Hussein or anybody else. You see it on the page. You're more likely to say Saddam because it looks like it. So to an extent, Saddam was a reading pronunciation because the two men could not actually converse. Okay, it was funny in its way, but boy, there's a lot of that in even our own language in that so many of our words are from French. Boy, do we butcher the French pronunciation of those words in large part because a lot of those words came into English really through the page. It wasn't through talking to French people that a lot of these words came into the language. A lot of it was that for a long time, when French speakers ran England, French was what was used in writing. And gradually, English started coming back, and that English had an awful lot of French in it. In a way, English came back and gradually ate up French, and for a while, there was a kind of Anglo-Norman hybrid hanging around. And so, a lot happened that came in through words that originally an English speaker was more likely to read. And so, for example, in Chaucer, the word city, in French, cité, he stresses it two ways in his verse, depending on what he needs for the beat. So you can have what we would pronounce as city or city, but it became city. But imagine you have a word like empire in French. And here in English, we pronounce it empire because that works better with our pronunciation system. They have something like image and we have image. That's kind of different. They have their way of pronouncing it. Then we read it on the page and make it into an English kind of pronunciation. Quite different, quite barbaric from their perspective, I'm sure. And something similar to this, actually, that I just want to throw in because I've always thought it was neat. Reading pronunciations. Well, take February. You ever notice how February is not fun to say? You know, we learn to, but there's a part of us that really would rather say February. At least there is for me. That's kind of what you feel like it should be. It would be a more natural feeling word. February always feels like a shoe on the wrong foot. And you know, in earlier English, it was just fever. That's how it came out. Feveral was the way a lot of people put it. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to say that? So April, March, fever. That's better than February. It's this awkward word. I think again of shoes. Well, actually, feverer is the way we would be saying it. But then somebody decided that we needed to go back to the original word. Feverer was from French, but that came from a Latin word, which is what we get February from. So we started writing February and treating that as the proper form. So it's kind of analogous to reading pronunciation. We say February, but only because somebody decided that the language wasn't allowed to move along the way it had. And so feverer, feveral, we can't have that. We have to say February. Before the first George Bush, we had Mr. Reagan. Let's think about how he spelled his name. Not Ronald, but the Reagan, R-E-A-G-A-N. Now, usually when you have that E-A sequence in our language, it's pronounced E. So, meet, beat, as in beating the odds. Feet, as in grand feats of strength. See, as in the ocean, not mate, bait, fate, and say. Meet, beat, feet, see. Originally, those words were pronounced 
mate, bait, fate, and say. Even in Shakespeare, when the change seems to have been in the midst of happening, you can see him do rhymes that wouldn't make sense to us now. And so, for example, Henry VIII, everything that heard him play, even the billows of the say, it's the sea, that doesn't rhyme for us, but it did for him because the word could still be pronounced say. Today, those words have changed, except for a very few. That few are a random little collection, and there are times when the reason for something is just chance. You have to build it into any model of change. And so, great, break, and stake have stayed the way they were. Really, those words should be greet, break, and steak. You should have a nice, juicy steak, but you just don't. Then there are two other words like that. Yay, as in yes, but that's a rather marginal word. And then the other one is Reagan. Why isn't it Regan? Especially because there is the name Regan. One thinks of King Lear or that person you went to college with whose name often was Regan. But for some reason with Reagan, it's just Reagan. It certainly has something to do with the fact that Reagan is originally an Irish word. It meant little king. And that change from E-A to E did not happen in Irish English in the way that it happened across the water. And so, for example, a person there might say Tay instead of T. Or did you ever see um, Juno and the Paycock, the, the Yates play? Well, it's Paycock because they would say Paycock instead of Peacock. It's not that a Paycock is you know, some other function. I always assumed that it was something like a cooper or a cobbler. Some Somebody was paying cocks in some way. But it's a Peacock. Probably for that reason, one doesn't say Regan, one says Reagan. But that's an odd thing about his name. As I teach my little daughter how to read, I'm doing it right now. It's exciting, and I'm going to do a show about it in the near future. I anticipate that when I'm teaching her her presidents and making sure that she can name them all in order in the way that I, for some reason, can, we're going to get to Reagan, and she's going to say, why isn't it Reagan? And I'm going to say, well, for the same reason that you've had to learn about great steak and break. Who was before Ronald Reagan? Well, there was Jimmy Carter. And you know what? All we need to play for Jimmy Carter is this, which will show that George W. Bush wasn't the only person who had an unusual way of pronouncing nuclear. We insist upon nuclear superiority as a basis for future negotiations. Support this nuclear arms treaty. (laughs) That's it. You know, I don't know. I really don't know why. For some reason, he said nuclear. Now, we could keep on going, but I want to take an even bigger jump just for fun. I'm sure there have been times when you have found yourself awake at three or four in the morning, wondering how William Howard Taft talked. I'm sure. I mean, you stood in the shower and thought about how your life has not been quite complete because you never heard his voice. Well, you're about to hear it. This is William Howard Taft in 1909. Listen to him. I am willing to admit that war has accomplished much in the progress of the world. I'm willing to admit that there are certain crises in the forward march of Christian civilization that perhaps could not have been met in any other way than by the sword. But the other side of the picture justifies the prayer of every man, of every civilized man, that war should be abolished. 
and that the suffering, cruelty, corruption, and demoralization that follow in its train should be, as far as we can bring it about, lifted as a burden from the human race. Now, first of all, doesn't he just sound like a really nice man? I don't know if that's the voice you would expect, given the physiognomy, which is so famous, but he sounds like such an approachable, not to mention intelligent person. He's somebody who hated being president and really wanted to be chief justice of the Supreme Court. That's what he felt he was really suited for. And somehow you can hear it in that voice. But putting on the linguist hat, demoralization instead of demoralization, as one would most likely pronounce it today demoralization. What's up with that? Well, it relates to a peculiarity of pronunciation that a lot of us think about these days, especially if you are from the East Coast and especially the Upper East Coast. You say, as I do, foreign, Florida, Oregon, horrible, orange forest. I know to a lot of you that sounds horrible because it's supposed to be horrible, Florida, Oregon, Note, I can barely say them. Foreign, you eat an orange and you get lost in the forest. Now, that is most of America at this point. But that wasn't the way it always was. The idea of people being cornered into the East, who say foreign and Florida, is relatively new. It used to be that many more Americans would have a difference between, say, chorus and foreign or floral and Florida. You can find sources from 100, 125 years ago that document that feature as much further west than it is today. And the foreign Florida, Oregon, horrible, orange forest, those sound right to me. Those were not the only such words. It was many more words. So, for example, one would talk about morals. One would talk about demoralization. William Howard Taft was from Ohio. And so you're not surprised that he says demoralization as opposed to demoralization. He was a speaker of 1909. He learned to speak in the second half of the 19th century. And so he spoke of demoralization. Anyway, um, I mentioned Benjamin Harrison near the beginning. He was our 23rd president. And really, he kind of did his job in between the two times that Grover Cleveland was president. And there really isn't that much to say about him. He was not tall. And as I said on a previous show, he (laughs) married twice and one day he died. But he is the first president that we can actually hear. There's a cylinder recording of Benjamin Harrison. And quite fittingly, he doesn't say anything remotely interesting. And there's nothing linguistic really to say about what he said. But I just think that all of us should hear Benjamin Harrison. Frankly, we should all hear anybody talking in 1889. Linguistically, I guess we can learn that apparently it was a fashion in the 1880s and 90s to speak in a very scratchy way. I imagine that that was one of their fashions, just like cloying cocktails and bustles. 
But everything changed. Anyway, you have now heard Benjamin Harrison. Um, I get letters, as they used to say, and I wanted to feature one before we go today. Leslie McCormick has reminded me of a manifestation of that er for oi that I talked about on a previous show. And so fireworks, fireworks. Well, back in the day, especially if you listen to a lot of awful old radio, there were often jokes about people saying Earl for oil. And it never occurred to me that that is another example of this fireworks, fireworks phenomenon. So oil, oil. So that's why you have all the jokes about the supposedly uncultivated person who says Earl instead of oil. And what I mean is something that you can hear in Edwin. Edwin is somebody who's probably best known today for playing the uncle who laughs and is floating up on the ceiling in Mary Poppins. But he had been a vaudevillian. He had been, for a brief spell, a huge radio star. And of course, in the 1930s, he was featured in a movie. And actually, at the end of that movie, you get to hear him doing one of these oil Earl jokes. So Edwin, he's somebody with that ooh, ooh, <laughs> that voice that you might remember from Mary Poppins, or he did the Mad Hatter in Alice and Wonderland. Here's Edwin um, kibitzing with his announcer and doing one of the old oil Earl jokes. And she went abroad and married three Englishmen with titles while automobiling through Europe. First, she married the Earl of Kensington in London. And 500 miles north of London, she married the Earl of Gloucester. And 500 miles west of there, she married another Earl. <laughs> Thank goodness she changed the Earl every 500 miles. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but I find that genuinely funny. It's his delivery because it's not funny at all in any case you can reach us at lexicon valley at slate.com that's lexicon valley at slate.com follow us on twitter at lexicon valley steve lichtai is the executive producer of slate podcasts and andy bowers is the chief content officer of the panoply network this show was edited by mike volo i'm john mcwarder thanks so much for listening and see you back here in two weeks <laughs> <laughs>